together. Lord, we are excited to be here this morning. It is uh, just a privilege even to hear these instruments uh, preparing to sing praise to you. You're the reason we're here, and we need you. We depend on you each and every day as we open the pages of this, of this book, as we consider its application for our lives. We know that your word does not return void. We see its power over and over again in the lives of others in our own life. And Lord, we admit we need it this morning. Please quiet our hearts. Tune out the distractions that can uh, infiltrate our minds and just help us to uh, just examine the text together, consider its application for today, help us to grow in our love for you and for each other. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you guys, but First and Second Thessalonians, it's not really a book that I turn to a whole lot. I don't know if you can agree with that statement or not. Um, honestly, before studying for this, I may have read it once. It's just kind of that small, like, couple of epistles that disappear in the New Testament. And yet, as I was studying and preparing to teach today, I was just really encouraged at some of the teachings of this book. I found it to be very uh, tender, very encouraging in the life of a believer, and I hope that you've uh, felt the same as you were reading it this week. Um, before we get into the questions, though, this morning, I wanted to give you a brief overview uh, of the book, help set the context a little bit for you. I think uh, understanding why it was written, when it was written, really helps to bring this book to life. Uh, these are not just words on a page, but Paul actually, 2,000 years ago, wrote this book to real people like you and I, people who had problems and questions. In the middle of Greece, Paul wrote them a letter and said, hey, here's some instruction for you. Here's uh, how to live your life. Here's what to do as a Christian. So I hope that as we read this, you're increasingly convinced that these are truly the words of eternal life. Yes, this book was written a long time ago, but it has relevance for us today. So we'll begin by setting the context of the book by considering its location. I'll have a map on the screen here for you. You can see Thessalonica right up there in the northern part of Greece. Uh, if you look to the right on that map, that is Turkey. All of the cities are in Greece there. And I've been impressed uh, just personally by how much of the New Testament actually takes place in modern-day Turkey and Greece. I find that to be kind of interesting. You'll recognize a lot of names on the screen there, either from an epistle that Paul wrote to places like Corinth or Philippi. Perhaps you remember some of those names uh, as we read through the book of Acts. But I had a thought as Shane was teaching through Ephesians a couple of weeks ago about the advance of the gospel to places like Greece and Turkey, and that's this. In the Old Testament, it is the Gentiles who are perpetually the bad guys, right? You think about growing up in junior church, hearing about the Philistines a whole lot. They're always the ones who are Israel's enemy. Then you keep reading in the Old Testament, it becomes the Assyrians and the Babylonians. These people are perpetually the bad guys. But then in the New Testament, there is this amazing shift that takes place where the people who were once the enemies of Israel 
now are receiving Jesus Christ in great number. And it's astonishing to think, as Ephesians says, that people who were once far off, people who were once strangers and aliens, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And here we are, even in having a book written to the Thessalonians, observing firsthand that people who were strangers and aliens are being brought near because of the gospel. It is spreading like wildfire. God's plan in the scriptures is awesome, particularly when we consider the inclusion of the Gentiles in the plan of God. A lot of us here are Gentiles. We appreciate that God, from the very beginning, had planned to include us in the story of redemption. One final thing about the location of Thessalonica here. When we were learning about Corinthians just a couple of months ago, we noted that Corinth is strategically placed on this little isthmus that uh, connects the two peninsulas of Greece. It was kind of the intersection of land and sea traffic. So too is Thessalonica strategically placed. There was actually a road that ran east to west from Turkey on the right all the way across Greece uh, on the left there, and the road kind of followed this pattern along the coast here. And Thessalonica was one of the stops on that road there. And you can actually trace Paul's journey to all of these cities as he travels on this road. It's really fascinating. I actually want us to turn to Acts 17 uh, as we begin our study this morning just to see how the church in Thessalonica was started. I think this is important for us to consider. Acts 17 How was this church started? I'll have a couple of questions for you. We'll read, I think, the first 15 verses. So it is a little bit lengthier, but pay attention. We'll have some questions that were not on the sheet for you this week, but that should be fairly easy to answer. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1. This is Paul on his second missionary journey. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a, many, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken the money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, 
agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, we realize that was a bit of a lengthier passage of scripture here describing how the church in Thessalonica was started, but my first question for you is just a simple one. How would you describe the Thessalonians' response to the gospel? Particularly the Jews in the city, how did they respond here? Brenda? Okay. Any other descriptions of how the people responded to the preaching of the gospel? Did they welcome Paul and say, hey, this is great news. Thank you so much for bringing the gospel to us. I see some head shaking. Uh, no, they didn't. I just had one word written down here. They were violent. Initially, the Jews of this city uh, get a little jealous that the Gentiles are being converted. Um, and they stir up a whole mob of people in opposition to Paul, and when they can't find him, they don't just hate Paul, they hate his message because they come after Jason. And they, you know, haul Jason off before a public official, and they say, this guy is stirring up uh, all of these people to follow another king, Jesus. Here's another question for you. Given the circumstances of how the gospel is received in Thessalonica, to the point that when Paul flees to Berea, the Thessalonians follow him there, still trying to hurt him. Do you think it was easy to be a Christian in Thessalonica? Probably not. We see how they respond to the gospel here. And when Paul leaves, there's still people who live there. So given, here's the final question, given Paul's rapid departure from Thessalonica as he flees for his safety, why do you think he writes First and Second Thessalonians? The text says that he was there for at least three Sabbath days, three weeks. He has to flee for his life. What do you think he's concerned about when he writes First and Second Thessalonians? Any thoughts? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Paul has just left a bunch of perhaps baby Christians behind. And Paul's concern for them is this. Persevere in the faith. Live for Jesus. Walk worthy of the gospel. I think this is illustrated by the key words that you have at the top of your page there. You'll see some words that are repeated pretty often. Pray, walk, faith, and Paul links their perseverance in the faith to that first one that's on your sheet, the coming of the Lord. And we could kind of summarize the purpose of these two epistles like this. The Thessalonians have been met with extreme difficulty upon receiving the gospel. First and second Thessalonians are full of descriptions of suffering and affliction. You'll see those words a handful of times. Paul knows what they're facing. These people realize following Jesus comes at a cost. But Paul's advice to them is this. Jesus is coming back. So endure. 
persevere in the faith. Keep walking worthy of the gospel because there is coming a day in which Jesus will return and all of your afflictions that seem so heavy in this life, Thessalonians, are going to be but momentary when you consider the eternity that awaits you with your Savior. And I trust that the same encouragement rings true for us. We're no strangers to hardships as Christians. We know that sometimes we are on the receiving end of a smirk or a scoff. We suffer for following Jesus, but Paul's encouragement to us is this life is not the end. Don't get caught up in living for the here and now. Don't put too much stock in this life Follow Jesus, pursue Christ-likeness, live for the life that is to come so that when he returns, you will not be caught off guard, but you will be ready for it. I was thinking just this week about a song that um, uh, is anticipating the rapture, and I think the chorus goes something like, glad day, glad day. And and I was just thinking about our own response to the coming of Christ. Is that going to be a glad day for us? Or are we going to be a little embarrassed that we actually haven't been living for Christ? And we're caught off guard a little bit. I think there's some encouragement here for us to consider. That's a big introduction to the book. I realize that was actually kind of lengthy there, but I hope that just gives First and Second Thessalonians some color. These people only had Paul's ministry maybe for just a couple of weeks, and Paul's writing to them, hey, keep going, persevere, even though I'm not here with you. So we'll begin in chapter 1 with our questions then from the reading. First question is this. According to verse 8, how widespread was the testimony of the Thessalonians? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, their faith has gone everywhere. Paul makes a similar comment about the church in Rome saying uh, that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. It's evident that in Thessalonica, in Rome, these people cannot stop talking about Jesus. Even in the face of persecution, suffering, and affliction, these people say, you can't keep us silent about him, to the point that Paul actually says, I don't even need to tell other people about what's happened in Thessalonica because people are telling me what I did there, what the gospel is doing there. Their faith is known throughout the whole world, and their bold testimony is a bit of a rebuke to us, I think, sometimes, because we will often keep quiet about our association to Jesus for far less persecution and suffering. We're afraid that people might smirk at us. They might roll their eyes and think, well, you're weak-minded. You have a crutch of religion, and so we'll keep quiet about our association to Christ. Can I say this? If we really believe that it is true, that there is no other name under heaven by which people are going to be saved, then Jesus should be at the tip of our tongue all the time as we plead with people, repent, come to Christ, because your life without him is to be condemned. And as Paul hears these rumors about what is continuing to happen in Thessalonica, as the news gets uh, increasingly wider... It's not just their words that testify that they know Christ. There's also some works that give evidence of their genuine conversion. What works does Paul point to that he says, yeah, you guys are, in fact, genuine in your faith? 
What does the text say, Jabari? Yes, great answer. They stopped worshiping at idols. They worshiped God. What else did they do? They gave evidence of their true faith. There's one more thing in there. Hutch. Yes, they're waiting for the return of Christ. So these people turn to God away from idols. They await the return of Jesus Christ. And we're reminded even in this that genuine fruit always accompanies repentance. The Thessalonians did not get caught up in the frenzy of Paul's personally being there. And they're like, whoa, there's a Christian celebrity among us. Of course, we'll believe. And then he disappears and they get kind of cold. And okay, that was just, you know, the, the seed that fell on the soil briefly. No, Paul leaves, and these people's faith endures. It continues. They give genuine evidence that their faith is real. And we need to ask ourselves, what fruits give evidence of genuine conversion in my own life? Are you serving God? Are you expectantly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. We're going to study 1 John in just a couple of weeks, and John is full of these sort of evaluative questions to help people know whether or not they're in the faith. He says, do you love the world? Because if so, the love of the Father is not in you. Do you claim to love God but hate your brother? That's true, then it's also true that the love of God is not in you. Do you claim to be a follower of Jesus? but don't keep his commandments. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but aren't doing what he says, John says, then you're really not his follower. We're just reminded here in 1 Thessalonians that there is a litmus test for people who claim to be followers of Jesus. It's not just something that their mouth gives uh, credibility to. It is something that their life evidences. How about this third question here as Paul is talking to them He makes a really neat point about Jesus. What does he say in verse 10 that Jesus delivers us from? Diane. The wrath to come. Yeah, this has been a major theme of the book of Romans thus far through our study. The first like three chapters are spent describing how God's wrath is presently on sinful humanity. Every single person will face the wrath of God for their sin. And so the news gets really good there at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4 and following that someone satisfied the wrath of God. His name is Jesus Christ. And as Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a comforting thought, especially to these Thessalonians as they are in the midst of hardship themselves, and they are thinking, man, this following Jesus thing is really hard. Paul says, be encouraged. The biggest threat you face, the wrath of God that awaits every single person, is something that you will not experience. So really, the hardship of this life is as hard as it gets for you guys. Find comfort and solace in Jesus Christ, because he has delivered you from the wrath of God. Paul is thrilled at the reports that he is hearing from the Thessalonians. And chapter 2 is spent kind of recapping his ministry to them. Uh, So, 
we'll then look at uh, the questions from chapter 2 here. As Paul is describing his ministry to them, I asked you in your own words to summarize Paul's method of sharing the gospel. What were some of the themes that were apparent to you as Paul says, hey, here's how I came and preached to you? Feel free to scan those verses again, verses 3 to 6. How did Paul preach here? Craig. Yeah, to share the gospel without compromise in a loving manner. Any other thoughts uh, from these verses as to Paul's method in sharing the gospel? Yeah, Brenda. Oh, yeah, that's a big theme of the Thessalonians. This life is not the end. I had this just kind of summarized. Paul, in preaching the gospel here, wasn't seeking an opportunity to gather an audience, to make his name great. He wasn't trying to exploit these people and get rich off of them. He wasn't preaching the gospel in a way that was underhanded or watered down. He came to preach the true gospel, and his only intent or motive was to please God. Very straightforward. He is preaching Jesus Christ for no other reason than to please God. And when he came and he spoke to these people, Paul came in great tenderness. In fact, he uses a couple of human relationships to describe the love and care that he had for the Thessalonians. We'll just take them one at a time. In verses 7 and 8, how does Paul describe his relationship to the Thessalonians here? What, what human relationship does he liken this to? Diane. A nursing mother. Yeah, he says, I was like a nursing mother to you guys. What tender words. How about in verses 11 and 12, what human relationship does he compare this to? Jeff. A father with his children. Yeah, and I think sometimes there can be a caricature of Paul that he is very gruff, very to the point, not someone that is all cheery. I mean, he's just very logical, very intense. And yet I think what we're reading here in Thessalonians just shows us a a different side of Paul. He genuinely loved these people. In fact, he says, I didn't just give you the gospel. I gave you myself. I was like a mother and a father to you. And so now we're going to come to a new section in the questions that I added just this month. Pretty obviously, it's the apply section. And my intent in doing this was really to help us not just answer a bunch of fill-in-the-blank questions, but to pause and meditate and consider how the Bible can apply to our life every single day. So please give me some feedback on these. If they weren't all that helpful, let me know. Uh, But just trying something new here. I really want us, as James says, not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of it. So I hope that this prompted some uh, nice thinking for you. So here's the apply section. According to these first couple of chapters here, What are some principles for evangelism that you identified from the reading? Any principles of evangelism that just became very evident to you as you read about how Paul ministered to these people? Shane. Yes. Our motivation needs to be to glorify God. If I could just be transparent with you guys sometimes, sometimes my motivation in evangelism is really just myself. I think, how awesome would it be if I walked in here on a Sunday morning with the, you know, most worldly-looking dude that I had just led to Christ? That'd make me look pretty good, huh? Paul says, when I came, my motivation for preaching the gospel was just to please 
God. Yeah, that's a great one, Shane. What other principles for evangelism can we glean from this text? Yeah, Lisa. Totally. Do you love the people that you share the gospel with? Are you coming at them like the gospel's a club and you're just beating them over the head? Listen to this truth. Believe it. Or do you love them? I think that's very important. Paul's example of love is awesome here. I think the boldness that Paul has as well is uh, encouraging to us. You know, Paul says in Galatians, he's not trying to please man in his preaching of the gospel. Because if he was, he would not be a servant of Christ. These two things are at odds with each other. You cannot please man and God at the same time. For Paul, it's a no-brainer. I'm not compromising my message. I am preaching Christ alone. And it is faith alone in him that saves you. We would do well to follow Paul's example here. The next part of this question just asks you to write a short prayer. I hope that was helpful. A lot of these apply questions are simply going to be to take time and pray through the text. All right, we come now to chapter 3. Paul had ended chapter 2 with uh, expressing his desire to say that, hey, I wanted to come see you guys again. I know my stay there was short. I'm trying to get back to Thessalonica, but Satan was hindering Paul, he says. So instead, he sends Timothy to go check in on the Thessalonians. And chapter 3 picks up with describing the reports that Timothy brought back to him. And we just see, you know, Paul's concern again for the church in Thessalonica. What was he concerned about according to verses 2, 5 to 7, and 10? Julia. Yes. He thought that their faith was going to be tested, and so he is writing to just check in on them guys, are you persevering? Are you continuing in the faith? He lists a couple of reasons that maybe they had fallen away. He says, maybe the tempter has successfully distracted you from following Jesus. Maybe the suffering and the afflictions that you guys have experienced have derailed your faith. Very possible. And yet, Timothy comes back and brings the good news that the Thessalonians are continuing in faith and love. And this brings great comfort and joy to Paul, who is in affliction himself. Paul says, I'm being afflicted personally, and yet the news of your faithfulness to Jesus Christ has brought great joy to my heart. I'm encouraged by what you guys are doing. What better news is there than to hear that someone you love dearly is following Jesus? Paul's joy at hearing this good news results in a pretty awesome benediction, we call it, or prayer that is in verse 11. So if you're in 1 Thessalonians, look at 3 verse 11. Paul hears this awesome news, and he just breaks out and prays to God. He says this, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. What are some of the specific requests that Paul makes as he prays for the church in these verses we just read. I think his requests here are are pretty cool. Could you articulate some of the requests that he has for this church? Joanne?
Yeah, I think, I think you're hitting at least one or some of the requests there. Paul says in these verses, listen, my prayer for you guys is that you would grow in your love for one another. My prayer for you guys is that at the return of Jesus Christ, you guys would be found blameless and holy. He's praying that they continue, they persevere. What awesome prayer requests that Paul is praying for us here. We'll kind of return to them in the apply section, but Paul turns his attention in chapter 4 to the next steps that this church needs to take here, and that's evidence for us by a phrase that is repeated a couple of times in verse 1 and 10. What phrase is repeated in these verses? Jeff? Okay. There's another sentence, Kaylee. Do this more and more. Yeah, I'll roughly paraphrase where these are found. Verse 1, Paul says, you ought to walk and please God and do so more and more. Verse 10, love one another more and more. So what do you think Paul is encouraging the church to do by using this phrase? What's he doing here? And using more and more, what's he encouraging them to to do. Any thoughts, Julia? Yeah, to continue pleasing God, to keep growing in their faith. We're reminded that Christianity is not just a once and done, I'm good, commitment to Jesus. No, there is an expectation that we grow, that we increase, that more and more we look like Jesus Christ. This is called sanctification. So Paul gives them some specific and helpful commands that he lists to help these believers continue their walk with the Lord What are some of those commands that he gives in the following verses? Lisa? Yeah, I think you hit most of them from the list. There's a bunch of them. Paul comes right out of the gate and says, step one of your sanctification is to flee sexual immorality. And he spends like the next five verses just really harping on this idea that being a follower of Jesus means that you are pure, that you have control over your body and your desires, that you conduct yourselves with holiness and honor. Then, as the verses continue, he describes growing in love for one another, aspiring to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands. We're reminded that part of the Christian life is not just, you know, totally distancing ourselves from every single thing in the world and only looking to the life to come, but we have an obligation as citizens to work, to live quiet lives, so that we do not bring reproach to the gospel, so that unbelievers see us and say, wow, Christians are good citizens too. That is part of our testimony. So we come now to the application section of chapters three and four, and I just asked you a simple question, one that you don't need to answer. I realize it's kind of personal, but do you share Paul's heart or concern for the spiritual growth of other believers? I want you to think about that just for a second. Here Paul is suffering affliction himself, a time when a lot of us would be praying for ourselves, God, please get me out of this. I hate suffering. I hate, you know, receiving injustice at the hands of the gospel. And Paul hears good news that the Thessalonians are following Jesus, and immediately he's joyful. He breaks out in praise to God. Are we so invested in the spiritual lives of other people that we rejoice when they grow in their faith? Are we walking so closely to other people 
that we are in tune to their spiritual needs, to their joys, to their sorrows, that we are not just doing the Christian life as a solo mission, but we hear about good news happening in other people, and we say, yeah, I'm encouraged too. And I asked you to use the benediction then in chapter 3, some of Paul's instructions in chapter 4, as a bit of a prayer guide that you would pray for specific people here at Grace this week. Again, I hope that was a helpful exercise for you, but this should be a regular practice for believers, that we aren't just praying, thank you, Lord, help me to have a good day, thanks for this food, amen, but that we would pause and truly pray for people at Grace by name, that they would endure, that they would keep following Jesus well. As chapter 4 ends and transitions into chapter 5, it's really just a continuation of the same topic. The end of chapter 4 continues, um, well, introduces rather, a discussion about the coming of the Lord. Paul has this uh, really well-known saying right there in verse 13, that we do not grieve as others who have no hope. Really interesting, a verse that you'll often hear uh, around the time of the funeral, that unbelievers don't have any hope when they see someone die. They just know, at some point this is going to be, be me. What happens next? But believers, they see a funeral, and it presents an opportunity for them to anticipate being with Jesus themselves. They know that death is not the end. It's just the beginning to being in the presence of the Lord. And so this continues on into chapter 5, where we encounter our first question, what event is Paul instructing the church to be prepared for in verses 1 through 11? Julia. Yeah, the return of the Lord when Jesus comes back. I find it interesting that he describes it as the day of the Lord. This is a theme that is very prevalent in the Old Testament, particularly the minor prophets. You'll see this theme or word uh, day of the Lord over and over and over again. Last fall, we studied the book of Joel together, and we saw that is a prominent theme in Joel's book. He says, be warned, be alert, the day of the Lord is near. I find it fascinating that that continues into the New Testament, and these authors are still saying, the day of the Lord is coming. Be ready for it. Jesus himself gives us instructions about this coming day, and he says, don't be caught off guard. Be alert. Be ready. It's going to come like a thief in the night. And according to verse 8, then, what helps us to live soberly in anticipation of that day? We have some tools at our disposal to help us as we await the return of the Lord. What are they? Cindy? Yeah, I was personally kind of surprised to see uh, an allusion to the armor of God here. But what helps us be ready for this day is the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of the hope of salvation. So if you were to answer the question, how do we stay prepared for the day of the Lord? It's a command in the scriptures. How do we practice it? Paul's answer is keep your focus on the hope that is ahead of you. Continue in the faith. Continue loving other believers. And as you do these things, each and every single day, you are going to find that you are living in such a way that is ready for the return of Christ. When you love other people, when you remember what it is that is still to come. And so when Jesus does return, you won't be caught off guard, but really you will make a practice of every single day anticipating it. 
So if it does happen today, you're like, well, I was ready for it. Because my whole life, I have been faithful, loving, keeping this hope in front of me. And what responsibility then do Christians have to teach others, excuse me, to each other as we await this day? There's a responsibility that we have here. What is it? Diane. Yeah, encourage one another. Build one another up. We have an obligation to put our arms around other believers who might be struggling, who might be consumed with this life, and we have an obligation to them to say, hey, let's get back in the race together. Let's keep going. I'm not an island to myself as a Christian. I have a responsibility, as you do to me, to help each other. Expect the return of Jesus Christ. And so in the apply section then, I just asked you to select one of Paul's instructions uh, from verses 12 to 22. This is where he's kind of rapid-firing the rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, give thanks and everything, and to write a prayer asking God to give you the grace to live that out today. And then there's another application question there for you as well. But we'll move on now to 2 Thessalonians. And these two books complement each other very nicely in the sense that 2 Thessalonians picks up where 1 left off and continues a discussion on the end times. And after some introductory comments, Paul directs his attention to the present suffering that Thessalonians are facing here. And he just addresses, listen, I know you guys are suffering. I know you're afflicted. But according to verses 5 and 8, when will the believer be avenged for the affliction he has received at the hands of unbelievers? When will this happen? When Christ returns, and we are reminded very simply from that answer there, that God is just. Perhaps you are like me, and you see a lot of injustices going on in the world around us today. You see wealthy people get away with crimes because they're influential and they have money. You read reports on the internet of slavery that is still modern day, that is taking place around the world, that human rights are being violated. You see infants, unborn babies being killed in the womb. You see other Christians being persecuted for their faith, suffering unjustly at the hands of believer, unbelievers, and you say, Lord, are you going to let your children suffer like this? I thought you were just. There, there's so much injustice going on around us, God. Where are you? And the encouragement of the scriptures is this. There is coming a day when Jesus will return and make all things new, and he will reward everyone according to their deeds. He is just. And that is coming in a future day. And what is the judgment of these unbelievers according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1? Did anyone see that, John? Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. There are people today, believe it or not, who deny the reality of hell. They say, ah, it's not a real place. Or a good God would never send someone there. I would just encourage you to take someone to this text of Scripture and say, the Bible doesn't think that. It describes a place of eternal destruction. 
for those who reject God. And second, you know, that's my first answer to your question. The second one, that a good God would not send people here, I would just answer that by saying, you're sending yourself there. You've chosen to reject God, and this is the consequence for it. In contrast, what will believers do on that day when Jesus returns, according to verse 10? It is a totally different uh, response here. Shane. They will marvel. Yeah. Can you imagine a lifetime spent in service to Jesus, suffering wrongly at the hands of unbelievers, day in and day out, feeling beaten down and worn down by this life, and then all of the sudden, here's Jesus. How awesome is that going to be? Still seeing the hands and the feet that have the scars in them, and to know there's my Savior. We're going to marvel at him. When other people are terrified, realizing that this is the one whom they have rejected, we have a totally different response. We say, wow, this is awesome. I really want to get to chapter 2 here. In chapter 2, Paul addresses perhaps a uh, teaching that the Thessalonians had come to believe that maybe the day of the Lord had already happened and they missed it. And these people are starting to panic, like, oh boy, how did we miss the day of the Lord? Paul says, uh, don't listen to everything you hear. Be discerning. There are going to be some events that precede the day of the Lord, namely that this man of lawlessness is going to be raised up before the return of Christ. So you guys haven't missed it because he isn't here yet. But according to verse 4, this man of lawlessness, what claim will he make? Julia, he's going to make this claim that he's God. Yeah, in fact, to the exclusion of all of these false gods, he's going to plop himself down in the temple of the true God and say, I'm here. I am God. What blasphemy by this man of lawlessness? Who is really behind the lawless one? Yeah, it's an easy one for us, right? Satan. Only Satan can do something like this. And what is the outcome for those who follow this lawless one? What happens to these people? They're condemned. Satan has these mighty works, these awesome displays of power. They fall for it. In fact, the text says that God actually sends a delusion so that people fall for it themselves. And in following this lawless one, they are condemned. The events of chapter 2 sound absolutely crazy. I mean, we've not seen anything like this, where Satan's power is just on full display. There's this individual who is claiming to be God himself. This is like, you know, about the best Satan can do here. And yet, according to verse 8, what threat does this man of lawlessness pose to Jesus Christ? None. Let's look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Notice, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. How awesome is that? I was just thinking about how in Genesis, God with a word speaks and everything is created. And here in 2 Thessalonians, Jesus speaks and this guy is killed. So we'll move now to the application section. That second question, how do these chapters increase your awe and love for Jesus? What are some things that come to mind about Jesus as you just think about this text? Lisa. 
He will judge. Yeah, he's making all things new, Shane. Sovereign. Yeah, he's in control of all things. Anything else? I know we're out of time. I just thought, hey, Jesus is awesome, especially if you know him. Terrifying if you're against him. But how cool to know that your Savior is coming to vindicate us and inflict vengeance on those who are opposed to us. Lastly, Jesus is worth entrusting our souls to. He's powerful. He can carry you through. So trust your soul to him completely, entirely. We see his power here in this book. We know what he's like. Let's follow and trust him together. Let's pray. Lord, we're just encouraged by what we read here about Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sparing us from the wrath that is to come. Help us to become more like your son as we just walk in a world that is increasingly hostile to you. Let us be salt and light, knowing that we can endure in this life because of what awaits us in the next. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.